Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to The Dark Parts, a show where we explore the darkest parts of history, the world, and your mind. I'm your host, Heath, and with me today, as always, is the lovely Queen of Scream, Daphne. Daphne, how you doing? I am good. I'm all Christmas jazzed up. Yesterday, we got our tree from a local Christmas tree farm here in Oregon. It was really, really fun grabbing that, and we decorated it and watched Christmas movies, and it was just amazing. I feel like it's still a little too early to, like, be super jazzed about it, but I don't even give a shit. I don't care. It's 2020. There's no rules. Yeah, there's no rules. I'm just having fun. But everyone, I did run a poll yesterday on Going West, and I was like, have you put up your decorations? And most people said yes, so I don't think it's too early. Yeah, it was like 63% had already put up their stuff, so good, good on you guys. We watched Happiest Season last night on Hulu, and it was so good, so everyone should check that out. By the way, Heath, how are you doing? I didn't ask. Oh, I'm doing great, and I'm especially excited about our new merch deal. Yes. Okay, so speaking of the holidays, we are doing a 15% off for all the merch in the store until December 7th. So go get your holiday merch because it does take a couple weeks to ship out because the holidays and the shipping delays and all that good stuff. Yeah, so we just don't want people like getting their gifts after Christmas. and That would just be so sad. Yeah, that would just suck. So Head over to thedarkparts.com, click the shop tab, use our promo code BADSANTA. One word, no spaces, BADSANTA for 15% off any item in our merch store. We've got some new uh, exciting merch items up in the shop that Daphne put together for you guys. Yes, we have mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, pullovers. We have a bunch of stuff. So go check it out and get your holiday merch now. Bad Santa. All right, guys, let's not waste any more flipping time. Let's get into today's episode. Abductions. It happens on Earth all the time. But what if your abductor really isn't of this world? What if beings from another world, another planet, another universe perhaps, is the culprit behind your psychological trauma? I mean, everyone thought Randy Quaid was a literal insane person in Independence Day until those aliens came a-knocking on America's front door. So grab your VHS copy of Invaders from Mars, and join us in this week's Tractor Beam Tale we call UFO The Abductions. There have been many alien abduction claims throughout history, but we have to start this week's episode off with one that created the modern age abduction phenomena. The story of Betty and Barney Hill from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. The year was 1961, and Betty and Barney Hill had just spent a lovely vacation at Niagara Falls on the border of Montreal and New York State. It was mid-September when Barney, who worked grueling hours for the post office, and Betty, who worked for the state handling child welfare cases, decided they needed a little getaway. It had been a whole 16 months since the biracial couple had tied the knot, and they still hadn't even gone on their honeymoon because of how busy they were. When they weren't working, they were involved in church-related activities or they were involved in civil rights groups. But the weekend was upon them. So without hesitation, the couple hopped in their 1957 Chevy Bel Air and hit the road with $70 in their pockets. Yeah, and I, I, when I was doing research, I read that Betty was really, really involved in uh, civil rights groups because obviously her husband, Barney, was a black man. And this was the 1960s, so obviously there was a lot of racism going on, segregation was a thing, so basically the couple was really involved in the civil rights movement. 
This trip had been so spontaneous that the Hills didn't even have time to stop at the bank for travel cash before they closed for the weekend. They'd spent three fun-filled days together, but now their vacation was coming to an end. On Tuesday, September 19, 1961, the couple, who was now exhausted from their trip, were now headed home as they sipped coffee on their way. That's when Betty noticed something in the sky around 10.30 p.m. that night as Barney navigated Route 3, just south of Lancaster, New Hampshire. Betty witnessed a bright light that looked similar to a falling star, but the strange thing was that the light wasn't falling at all. It was shooting upward just west of the moon that night. The light seemed to move erratically and with every minute grew bigger and brighter. So Betty asked Barney to stop the car so that they could get a better look. Betty also used this as a good time to walk the couple's dog, Delcy, who had accompanied them on their trip. Barney had pulled the car over at a very scenic picnic area south of Twin Mountain, and the couple got out to observe this light in the sky. Betty used a set of binoculars and described the light as an odd-shaped craft with multiple colored lights as it passed across the face of the moon. Several years prior to this night, Betty's sister had shared with her that she had seen a flying saucer. So naturally, Betty thought this could very well be what she was seeing. Barney was a bit more hesitant at first, and he asked Betty for the binoculars so he could take a look for himself. He smirked at Betty and told her that it was just a commercial airliner. That is, until the flying object changed direction and rapidly descended towards the hills. This scared but also kind of intrigued the couple, so they jumped back in their car and headed toward a mountainous stretch of road called Franconia Notch. The hills continued to drive at a slow pace in order to keep track of the object's movements. With a better view of the craft, Betty explained that it must have been about 40 feet long and it seemed to be rotating as it flew. Now just one mile south of Indian Head, The Hills noticed the flying object close in on their car, and this caused Barney to stop the car immediately. The craft was now hovering about 80 to 100 feet above the Hills' vehicle and was taking up the entire view through the windshield. Barney could only describe the craft as looking like a giant pancake. Barney reached for the pistol in his pocket that he always kept and exited the car to move a bit closer to the craft. He then reached for his binoculars and noticed 8 to 11 small human-like figures who were peering out of the windows of the large object. Barney then noticed all the figures move towards a panel connected to the rear wall of the craft except for one of them. One of the figures kept peering out of the window and telepathically communicated a message to Barney that said, Stay where you are and keep looking. Weird. What does that mean? I don't know. That's some mind control shit. Keep looking at them? Yeah, as if, yeah, like he wanted Barney to continue to focus in on them. And maybe, I don't know, maybe that's how these aliens were able to, like, control his mind somehow? I don't know. Weird. So Barney then said that the humanoid figures, who were dressed in black uniforms with black hats, opened telescoping fins on the side of the craft, as well as a structure that descended down from the middle underneath it. Barney then said that the object moved closer and was now within 50 feet of him. This is when Barney describes that he tore his binoculars from his face and raced towards the couple's vehicle. He then yelled toward Betty, 
They're going to capture us. As he entered the car and sped off into the night, he asked Betty to keep an eye out for the craft as they drove down the road. Betty rolled down the window and gazed overhead just before the hills heard a series of rhythmic beeping and buzzing noises. The car then vibrated and the hills began to experience a tingling sensation rush over their bodies. Then, the hills entered an alternate consciousness that affected their minds and dulled them, almost like being on a heavy sedative. Then, everything went blank. After an unknown amount of time, the hills heard yet again the sounds of beeping and buzzing, then, within an instant, gained full consciousness again. The couple then realized that they were 35 miles, or 56 kilometers, from where they remembered last being. The hills remembered making an unplanned turn, encountering a roadblock, then witnessing a bright orb in the road. Eventually, Barney and Betty made it home, arriving just before dawn on the morning of September 20th. The couple said that they felt odd sensations and impulses that they really just couldn't explain. And Betty also insisted on keeping the couple's luggage by the back door because she felt odd about keeping them near her and to make things even more strange, the couple's watches had stopped working. Which, I read, they never started working again. So I guess they never got those watches fixed. The Hills both immediately took hot showers in hopes of washing away any contamination that may have occurred, and for some reason, Barney felt compelled to examine his genital region. Oh no. So yeah, he was thinking like, that something happened. I, I mean, I wonder what made him think really need to inspect my wiener. You know what I mean? Oh my God. Well, you know what? I wonder if during this unconscious time, it was almost like he, he remembered something, like subconsciously remembered something that they, get, they did to him. So then he felt like he had to check because it was stored somewhere in his brain. It just wasn't an active memory. And you literally just hit the nail on the head because we're going to get into that here in a little bit. Once the Hills were able to gather themselves, they both drew a picture of what they experienced, which is really smart. Yeah, and we'll share those photos on our social media. They then tried to recreate a timeline for the events that occurred, but failed to do so. The Hills then slept for a few short hours, and upon waking up, Betty retrieved the couple's clothing from that night and put them in their closet. When she did, she noticed that Barney's best dress shoes were scuffed on the toes, and Betty's dress had been ripped at the seam. She also noticed a pinkish powder on her dress that hadn't been there before. And she thought about throwing the dress away, but then decided to just keep it as evidence. Over the years, five laboratories conducted chemical and forensic tests and analysis on this dress, and nothing could be conclusively determined. So they could not figure out what that pinkish powder was. I mean, that's five different labs that don't know. That's weird. That's fucking strange. On September 21st, 1961, so the day after the Hills arrived home, Betty called Pease Air Force Base located in New Hampshire and reported her and Barney's encounter. On September 22nd, Major Paul W. Henderson conducted a thorough interview with the Hills. Henderson determined that the Hills most likely saw the planet Jupiter which was later changed to insufficient data because obviously they're just trying to come up with a reason why these people had seen a UFO. Just like you were saying in the last episode, how people are, they're always trying to make some excuse up for something they can't explain. Exactly. 
He then forwarded this report to Project Blue Book, which is the U.S. Air Force's UFO research program, which we also talked about in the last episode. More interviews were conducted, and the Hills publicly spoke about their encounter for the first time in March of 1963. The Hills then heard about a man named Benjamin Simon from Boston who was a popular hypnotist at the time. He thought that maybe hypnosis would help the Hills account for their lost time that they had experienced. And Barney was the first one to go under. Before you start, I just have to say that hypnosis is crazy. It's very fucking crazy. We might have to do an episode solely on hypnosis. We totally should. And really quick, um, I used to work at a therapy office and I remember because Heath used to be a cigarette smoker and one of the therapists um, was talking to me about that and he said that he quit smoking himself after going to a hypnotist and basically the guy got him to quit smoking by putting him under and then he never smoked another cigarette again. I'm like, oh my God, that's so crazy. Yeah, no, seriously. My grandparents who were smokers for 50 plus years and that's how they stopped smoking. They went to a what? hypnotist. Yeah, it was a group session. My grandparents and my uncle Rick, all three of them went to this hypnotist, this group therapy hypnotist, and they stopped smoking. What? It's fucking wild. That's cool, but scary. Like, that just creeps me out. Wow. Okay, sorry. Continue. So, during Barney's session, he recalled six figures approaching him on a dirt road. He said that the leader told him to close his eyes, and Barney said he felt like their eyes had pushed into his eyes. And I don't really know what that means, but it's kind of a hard visual. Okay. So during his session, Barney also blurted out comments like, those eyes, and they're in my brain. Wow. So yeah, he was definitely like blurting out different different things while he was under hypnosis. I just feel like this holds weight. Just just the fact that he was saying this under hypnosis, like it just makes me feel, just believe it even more. Yeah, and there's some more weird stuff coming. So Barney then said that he and Betty were taken into a spacecraft and separated upon arrival. He was then escorted to a room by three figures and forced to lie down on a rectangular table. He remembered a cup-like device being placed over his genitals, and Barney believes a sperm sample was taken. The figures then scraped his skin and examined his eyes, ears, nose, and mouth. Then, a thin cylindrical tube was inserted into his rectum, and the figures inspected his spine, counting his vertebrae. Betty's session was fairly similar, and at the end of her admission, Betty began to cry as she told Simon that her experience caused her an extreme amount of emotional distress. When the sessions were over, Simon concluded that Barney had possibly experienced a fantasy inspired by Betty's dreams. But Barney rejected the idea, and the Hills never changed their story. On a positive note, the Hills explained that after the hypnosis, the couple no longer had anxiety about what they experienced. And many refer to this incident as the Zeta Reticuli incident, which is the star system in which the Hills describe their abductors were from. And a lot of people uh, call these particular extraterrestrial beings the Greys. That's a very common uh, name for these aliens. Creepy. Yeah, they call them the Greys, which is <laughs> makes it even more scary to me. I think it's bullshit that this hypnotist is like, oh, you are just 
kind of going off of a dream that Betty had? Like, why does everybody feel the immediate need to just shut down anything related to aliens? Again, because I feel like that's just a way for people to cope with things that they don't know. I just don't know why they would be lying or making this up. And and I think that everyone should just give people like this the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they definitely deserve the benefit of the doubt until proven otherwise, I think. Another really interesting abduction that I came across took place in the United States in the Southwest, where most UFO sightings really occurred, and it had me really intrigued when I was doing research for this episode. On November 5th, 1975, a man named Travis Walton was working with a forestry crew in the Apache Sitgraves National Forest near the town of Snowflake, Arizona, when he and six of his co-workers witnessed something very strange. While riding in the back of a work truck, the men saw a saucer-shaped craft in the sky buzzing about 110 feet from them. Walton says that he left the truck and started walking towards the object, which is probably never a good thing, when a beam of light suddenly appeared and knocked him unconscious. The other men on the crew were frightened and they left the area as quick as possible. Travis then said that he woke up in a room and was being examined by three bald human-like creatures. He said that he then fought with the creatures until a human wearing a helmet led him into another room. Once inside this other room, three other humans put a clear plastic mask over his face and Walton then blacked out. What? I mean, the thing with these kind of stories is I feel like they all kind of have the same vibe and a lot of the same, not the same details like they're being copied, but like very similar experiences. Yeah, yeah. There's, they're always, uh, there's always like an operating table. You're always being poked or prodded or examined. It seems to be kind of the same scenario. Which is such a scary thing about the concept of alien abductions is that that's kind of what comes to all of our minds when we think of them is that they're going to fuck with us in some way and it's like what are they doing what are they going to do to us and I think that's what's so terrifying about it and why people try to just nip these stories in the bud because they don't want to believe that something like this could happen. I think that also a lot of our culture has instilled fear about alien abductions in us Like, I mean, you think about movies like Alien or Aliens or The Thing or any space movie, there seems to be like this, this fear of the unknown. Why? Because you mean that maybe the aliens are just taking us to capture data and then just put us back out there and actually have done no harm to us. Well, let me just say this. I feel like there's a group of people who are you know, ready for the day that they get abducted by aliens that want that to actually happen. And then there's another group of people who fear that, like that's their worst nightmare. I mean, because it's so unknown, it's very possible that aliens don't have bad intentions and don't want to hurt human beings. They just want to know more about us. That is if you in fact do believe in extraterrestrial life. Which I feel like a lot of us are on the fence, but hey, let's, let's, uh, let's give it a chance. <laughs> so after this incident, Travis explained that he found himself walking down a highway five days after he was taken. He was also declared missing in those five days, 
and his co-workers were under suspicion of foul play while Travis was gone. Yeah, like literally the company, the forestry company was like, so did you guys murder that guy, Travis? That's so crazy. Meanwhile, something totally crazier possibly happened to him. So an intense investigation was conducted to authenticate his story, which included physical, psychological, and even polygraph tests. Tests were also done regarding the abduction site, and weirdly enough, research showed unusual growth rates of trees in the immediate vicinity. Although polygraph testing is inaccurate at times, as we discuss on our other show, Going West, Travis did pass all of them except for one that was deemed inconclusive. In the days after Walton's disappearance, the National Enquirer awarded Travis and his coworkers $5,000 for the best UFO case of the year due to the fact that he passed the polygraph test administered by the Enquirer and the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. So basically, they were like, hey, since you passed all these polygraph tests, we know that you're probably not lying because back then, polygraph tests were a lot more reliable or people thought they were. And so they're like, you passed all these tests? Here's $5,000 for your story. That's so weird. UFO expert Jim Ledwith said of the incident, quote, For five days, the authorities thought Travis had been murdered by his coworkers, but then he returned. All of the coworkers there had seen the spacecraft. But on the flip side of this, there are some people that are pretty skeptical regarding Travis Walton's encounter. Some felt that this was an easy way for Travis and his coworkers to make a little bit of extra money. UFO researcher Philip J. Class claims that Travis's story was set up for financial gain and that there were many inconsistencies in the co-workers' accounts of that day. But regardless, a film called Fire in the Sky was made about this incident in 1993 that details Travis Walton's story, and in 1978, there was also a book that was published called The Walton Experience that was released that year. It can really be so hard with these stories because they present these other ideas like, oh, maybe they were just trying to make a couple bucks. And you're kind of like, well, that could be possible. But also, did this happen? It's like, what do, what do you believe? Yeah, exactly. And I wonder where, if this was some sort of hoax for financial gain, where was Travis Walton for five days? Right. And how did they even know they were all going to get $5,000? Yeah, I mean, they didn't know that beforehand, I don't think. So that's why it's, to me, it's kind of like, well, how did they, they're going to make up this whole story and then they just know they're going to make money off it? Like, I don't know. Yeah, it seems kind of strange. And, you know, Travis Walton to this day stands by his encounter. One of the strangest incidents I came across includes both sightings and abductions. On September 1st, 1969, Residents of Berkshire County, located in Massachusetts, witnessed what they described as a UFO phenomena. Multiple people reported seeing a disc-like craft fitted with lights making quick maneuvers in the sky. A boy named Thomas Reed, who was nine years old at the time, remembers being in the car with his mother and grandmother as they were driving home, when all three noticed glowing orbs appear from the trees on the side of the road. When the family approached the Sheffield Bridge, which is a town in Berkshire County, Thomas described a calm feeling and a change in pressure. Then he heard an eruption of sounds coming from frogs and crickets in the area. Then, all of the sudden, 
the family found themselves sitting in the car, but the weirdest part is that two hours of time had passed and they hadn't moved. That's weird. Right, so they were just sitting there for two hours. Even more strange was the fact that Thomas's mother and grandmother had switched seats in the car during that lost time. So the mom was driving and the grandmother was in the passenger seat and somehow they switched and the grandma ended up in the driver's seat, mom was in the passenger seat. Thomas had no idea what happened. That is, until more incidents were reported in that area. So at that time, they're sitting in their car two hours past. They don't know that all this time had passed. And the mom and the grandma switch seats without knowing how or when that happened. And then they're all just like, what the hell was that? Yeah, and their car is still sitting right in front of the, Se- the Sheffield Bridge. And they're like, what the hell? Like, how have we been sitting here for two hours? And what have we been doing? Exactly. Another incident that occurred that night was the abduction of Tom Warner, a boy from Great Barrington, Massachusetts, in Berkshire County. Tom was at his neighbor Jane Shaw's house, who was helping him with his creative work and drawing, when Tom said he felt a telepathic wave rush over him. Almost like someone was speaking to him from inside his own head, explaining to him that he needed to run home. He was scared by this and immediately got up and proceeded to leave Jane's house and head for his own. Tom began to sprint across the street towards his house, but he then noticed that he was running but not going anywhere. Tom had been jogging in the same spot over and over again, almost like a dream. After five minutes of exhaustive jogging, Tom looked to his left and noticed a UFO beside him and then a bright light beam covered his body. The crazy part is that Jane Shaw had watched the whole thing from her window. Tom then noticed that all of his energy and air inside of his body was depleted before being sucked away into the spacecraft. Inside the ship, Tom remembered seeing a girl named Melanie Kirchdorfer, who he had never met before, but who had also reported seeing a UFO two miles away at Lake Mansfield. As quickly as the abduction started, it ended with Tom laying at the other end of the Shaw's property. Jane Shaw said that the whole vanishing and reappearing process took about seven minutes to happen. Tom still lives in Great Barrington to this day, and he actually sells art of his paintings that he's done depicting his own abduction. This story was also detailed in the reboot of the show Unsolved Mysteries for anyone who's interested in more information on this. I love that he's kind of taking his experience into his own hands and and just owning it because so many people are really ashamed of just how the public has reacted to their stories and they kind of just either stop telling the story or kind of go into hiding. And I like that he's like, no, this is what happened to me, and here's what it looked like. Yeah, and for those of you who do watch that episode of Unsolved Mysteries, it's really, really fucking crazy. Like, there's more experiences that happen on that night, and there's more uh, reports of UFOs and abductions that happen in Berkshire County that day. Meaning that all these people had witnessed the same thing, which again, it's really hard to debunk something like that. Yeah, when multiple people are saying that this thing happened, then it's kind of hard for me to say, no, it didn't. 
Annoying as it is, some psychologists claim that abductees disassociate and that they are more prone to experiencing an altered state of mind. Therefore, the incidents they perceive are more than likely false memories that feel real but are not. Which again, how can you say this for all these people in the same area who have the same story? Yeah. And how can you say that when there's literally thousands of UFO sightings and thousands of abduction claims. Yeah. And I mean, if you ask anyone who has experienced abduction, they will tell you that they're not crazy and what happened to them really did happen. In fact, there are multiple groups that support people who claim to have experienced abduction. In Warham, Massachusetts, I think it's pronounced Warham, a group called Starborn was created to do just that. Debbie Starborn and her sister Audrey had experienced extraterrestrial encounters since they were children. Debbie used to beg her parents to protect her from the beings she called bald men. Again, everybody has the same freaking experience. They're bald dudes. She said that late at night, a blue light would shine through her bedroom, then her body would start to vibrate, and she became paralyzed. That's when the bald men would come. Well, that's horrifying. That is, but again, the vibrations, the paralysis, like, it's all so similar. And this was at a time when... The abductions weren't just a Google search away. So why did they all have the same story, pretty much? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really strange. Debbie knew that she simply couldn't just tell people about her encounters for fear that people would label her crazy and disregard her claims. She says that's exactly why she started Starborn. She wanted to give abductees a place to come together and share their experience without being judged. Debbie also says that she wishes non-believers would treat experiencers with more respect. She believes people who have experienced an encounter are only ridiculed because it's easier to attack something that you can't understand than accept the unknown. And while I was doing research for this episode, I found out that a woman named Anne Ramsey Couvlet invites experiencers or abductees to her Victorian-style home in Rhode Island each summer to share their stories and provide comfort for other people who have experienced encounters as well. That's amazing. Yeah, and this house is literally, it's crazy. It's like this gigantic Victorian-style, beautiful house in Newport, Rhode Island. And Anne's home was actually once called the most elegantly finished house ever built in Newport, Rhode Island. And it's certainly big enough to accommodate all of her guests. Wow. Anne has never encountered extraterrestrial life, But growing up, she heard her father speak of unidentified flying objects on numerous occasions. And this really intrigued Anne, and ever since, she's been an avid ufologist. Occasionally, medical professionals, scientists, and psychologists sympathetic to the experiencer's stories will show up to this this event and indulge in the mysteries with the guests. So it seems like there's a pretty large group of support for people who have claimed to have been abducted. That's so cool. And another really fascinating incident is called the Pascagoula Incident. So on October 11th, 1973, Calvin Parker and Charles Hickson went fishing on the Pascagoula River in Mississippi. The two were having a great time when Parker noticed blue lights reflected off the water coming from the sky. At first, Parker thought that police were there to tell the two men to leave the area. But then he noticed a big light protruding from the sky. 
The lights were extremely bright, but the men described a football-shaped craft that was approximately 80 feet long, hovering in the air and creating a low hissing sound. Parker then said that three legless creatures floated off the craft and hovered toward he and Charles. Legless creatures. Okay, so I, I that to picture. <laughs> that is a first, I think, in experiences. Yeah, I haven't heard legless yet. So the creatures were gray in color, we've heard that, and had mitten-shaped claws. And Parker then described how the beings tried to wrap their arms around his neck, and when this happened, all of the fear Parker felt disappeared. He believes the creatures must have injected the two men with something to calm their nerves. So we have talked about like a sort of sedative feeling. So that is also common in the stories. Yeah, and the story you just told, um you said that I think it was the one you just told that he had like an overwhelming feeling of peace. Yeah, yeah. So there's another one. Parker then said that he and Charles were taken aboard the spacecraft and experimented on. After the men were poked and prodded, they found themselves back on the riverbank as if nothing ever happened. They then quickly drove to the Jackson County Sheriff's office to report the incident. He said that when the aliens had him, there were no seats or chains. They just moved him around freely while he floated in the air. He felt no sensation and no pain whatsoever. Charles Hickson on the other hand claimed that a machine that looked like a giant eye examined his body and he was surrounded by inhuman Five foot tall monopedal beings. And it's no surprise, but the sheriff didn't believe the two men. So when he left the interrogation room, he secretly left a recording device running inside the room, hoping he could obtain proof that the men were lying. But after playing the tape back, he changed his mind. Hickson is heard saying, Jesus Christ, God have mercy. I thought I'd been through enough hell on this earth, and now I have to go through something like this? But they could have, you know, I guess they, well, they could have harmed us, son. They had use. They could have done anything to us. Then Parker is heard replying, I just want to cry right now. What's so damn bad is that nobody's going to believe us. Parker stayed quiet about his abduction for decades. But after Charles Hickson's death in 2011, he wrote a book about the event. The publication of his book actually inspired others from the area to come forward claiming that they too had seen the UFO with blue lights on that October night. So there, it wasn't just him and Charles that apparently had seen this spacecraft. There were other people who were like, we were afraid to say something for many, many years, but now that you've written this book, we're coming out to tell our story. Which is amazing. But I do really love that the sheriff put the tape recorder in the room because to me, that actually is so genuine, just like the sheriff thinks. Like, If they had been lying, they would have been like, oh, yeah, like he totally believes us. And oh, no, let's say this next or whatever. But the fact that they genuinely seemed really scared and worried that that something could have happened to them and that no one was going to believe them, like that says a lot. Yeah, to me, that says a lot for sure. I don't know if this tape actually exists or if it's on YouTube or something. I didn't check that out. That's something I definitely need to do. A survey conducted in 2017 reported that 47% of Americans believe in aliens which would translate to about 150 million people. And that percentage is 5% higher than a study conducted in 2012. On top of this, 
The survey reported that 38.78% of Americans believe aliens have visited Earth, and 16% say that they have actually seen a UFO, which is equivalent to one in six Americans. Wow. That's a lot. That is a high percentage, actually. Which is weird, because I don't know anybody who has been had an experience like this. Maybe they just haven't told you. They're just keeping it a secret. The survey also stated that about 18% of Americans believe that abductions occur. So whether you believe these stories or not is entirely up to you, but just know that if you do believe them, there are literally millions of other people you share that in common with. So, strangers, what did we learn today? We learned that aliens seem to have a weird fascination with the human body, and if you're abducted, you might end up with an E.T. handy for your baby gravy. We also learned that if you do witness a flying saucer hovering in your general area, it's probably best to not walk towards it or chase it down with your car because you may end up having to punch a bunch of little Martians in the face to escape a spacecraft. And finally, we learned that if you're abducted, don't be afraid to proudly stand by your experience because there are far stranger things that occur on our planet, like people who believe the Earth is flat, goblin sharks, Splashing. I guess that's a thing. The 1980s mullet trend, bath salt zombies, and my personal favorite, the fact that Daphne has literally never farted in front of me. Just let it out, girl, before you spontaneously combust. That's our show, guys. Today's horror tip comes to you from John Carpenter's 1982 classic, The Thing. God, those always crack me up. Not The Thing, Heath's um, outros. American research stations in Antarctica are not a place to go messing around, especially if there's a Norwegian research station nearby. Also, keep a flamethrower handy, my friends. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of The Dark Parts. Yes, thank you guys so much. And don't forget, we are offering 15% off of merch on our website. Head over to thedarkparts.com and hit the shop tab. Go to our merch store and use code BADSANTA, one word, to get 15% off merch. That's only going to be a thing until December 7th, so make sure to get your Christmas gifts now. Also, thank you guys so much for leaving us great reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you leave reviews. That really helps our show become more noticeable, and if you love our show, we want more people to... Uh, discover our show so we can continue to create it. Yes, we love doing this show so much, but we're only going to keep doing it if you guys keep listening. So share with a friend, leave us a nice review if you dig us, and we love you. Also, head over to our social media accounts and give us a follow. You can follow us over on Instagram at the Dark Parts Podcast, and you can follow us on Twitter at the Dark Parts Pod. And that's where we post all of our photos for every episode. So go check out the ones for this one. All right, guys. We'll see you next time in the dark parts. (laughs) 